I love this time of the year. I love the fact that, uh, especially in this church, that we, we just enjoy sharing love and life with each other and have had comments of so many people have been here, through here that just said this is such a warm place and that's an indication that Jesus is here. I'm so thankful for that. Two weeks ago I told you that there was going to be three themes that I was going to be dealing with. One of them was Christmas joy, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and then last week we got to watch all of the energy and excellence of our children. And, and they are fan- we have some phenomenal little actors and actresses. Uh, now that's one of the things that our, our church is known for is, is the arts and uh, you can see it starts young. Now, some of you have to live with that drama every day in your house. Uh, I just want you to know God can use that. He, he can use that. So, when, so if you're a child and you get called a drama king or queen, we consider that a compliment here. And uh, just want you to be aware of that. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask that you would turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And today I want to spend just a few minutes talking about the theme of Christmas hope. Christmas hope, and then next week on Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about Christmas peace. Christmas peace. Even though there's there's no command in the New Testament to celebrate Christmas, we happily join with millions of Christians around the world in remembering the birth of our Savior. Uh, I loved that song this morning as we were singing Silent Night, and uh, I've asked the team to come up at the end of the message, and we're going to sing that that, that part about hope again because it just fits so well with what we're doing today. But joy to the world, the Lord has come. What a great message. The Lord has come. And, uh, and because he was born in Bethlehem, the hopes and the fears of all the years. Now, I have both hopes and I admit to you that I have some fears. Any of you fit in both those categories? Then Christmas is for you uh, because Jesus has come to address all of those things. In Hebrews chapter 6, now this doesn't seem like a typical Christmas passage, but I believe as we get through the message today, you'll begin to see why. Beginning with verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and will give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and an oath confirms what is is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, and we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Heavenly Father, as we approach the topic of hope, and especially around Christmas today, I ask that you, through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, would begin to make very clear the plans that you have made to redeem mankind. That today we would be a people who would stand firm on the hope of Christmas because of what you have done in bringing Jesus to us. And Lord, if there is anyone here today that is finding themselves in a place where they feel hopeless if they feel as if they have no direction and no chance, I pray that today intersecting your grace would be eternity-changing for them. 
And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have any of you ever given any thought to what it might have been like to be a brother or sister of Jesus growing up? If, if some of you think that you have a perfect brother or a perfect sister, uh, if, if some of you feel as if you are the unloved one out of... Can you imagine being Jesus' brother or sister? Um, can you imagine what it might be like at, when you know, Mary or Joseph said, Okay, Jesus, it's your turn to pray over the meal. And he goes, Okay, Lord, bless all of this. In my name I pray. Amen. How, how that might make your brothers and sisters feel. Um, this is one of those passages of Scripture where God begins to declare to himself and to all of us that since there is no one greater than me to swear upon, I swear upon myself. In other words, the promises that I'm going to give you from this day forward, I want you to know that, number one, I'm not a liar, and I've come to give you hope, and I swear this on myself since there's no name higher than this. And from that begins a process by which the Lord brings to us a hope. And this promise that we read here was was from 4,000 years before Jesus came to a man named Abraham who met God when he was a pagan businessman in the Ur of the Chaldees. And his meeting with God, or rather God's meeting with him, radically changed his life and altered the course of human history. And God had promised him that I'm going to give you a land of your own and I promise you a whole nation of descendants, even though Abraham and Sarah had no children. He promised that he would be the father of nations and that they would be blessed. And he promised that from them would come the nation of Israel 2,000 years later and that Jesus would come through them, the ultimate seed of Abraham. And so that is the background of our text as we begin to move forward. And in in order to help us understand, we've got this scripture that the Lord says, I've made a promise to you and I seal it with myself that I'm going to bring hope to the world. Now here's where we start this. At Christmas we come to an understanding that we wouldn't need Jesus unless there was something that took place to ruin humanity in the beginning. And in the Garden of Eden, we all know the story, or at least most of us should, about how the fall of man took place and how they disobeyed God. And out of all the great choices that they could make, they made a bad one. And in that moment of time, sin entered into the world. And instantly, we begin to recognize that the plans that God had had for us when he created us were instantly ruined. And as a result of that, God had to do something. Now, if you have a bulletin with you, there's a a short outline here if you'd like to jot down some notes. But one of the things that God has given to us is past promises. He's given to us past promises which bring us to a place of hope. In that garden, God decided, and out of all the choices that he could have made, and out of all of the ways that he could deal with sinful man, he could have just destroyed Adam and Eve and started over. He could have said, your choices have ruined it, and this is not what I had planned, so I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And because he's God, he could have started over, but he chose not to do that. So salvation began with a simple observation that in that moment when we blew it, God didn't give up on the human race. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad God has not given up on me in times of my life when I have not lived up to the promises that he had given me. And so because God did not give up on the human race, he was determined to do something, and he would not let Satan win the battle for the planet Earth. And from that moment, in those first few chapters of Genesis, we begin to look at Scripture, and God began to plant seeds of prophetic words that was going to take place, that was going to bring us to a place where today we know we have Christmas hope. 
And I'd like to spend just a few minutes looking. I, I want you to picture as if there was this giant funnel up here that starts in a wide opening at the top, and at the bottom there's just a very small pinprick of an opening. Because this is the way we're going to look at Christmas hope today through what was proclaimed to us in the Old Testament. We know that through the Old Testament there was a progressive unfolding of God's plan to counteract sin as it came in at Eden. And God made promises that while vague in the beginning were the first glimmer of hope to a fallen man. And that promise can be traced across centuries as God slowly but very carefully clarified exactly what he was doing by narrowing the scope because he was going to send someone to this earth to deal with the sin. And so let me just give a quick, a quick and, and, and brief highlight of some of the Old Testament prophecies that begin to be the hints of God as to how he was going to begin to deal with it. In the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15, there's the verse that says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, the first hint that God says, I'm going to bring hope to you, is the fact that he's talking about, I'm going to send a human. I'm going to send somebody into the human race, and it's going to be a member of the human race. In this verse that we read contains an amazing amount of information concerning God's plan to rescue us from our sin. Number one, we know that God's plan centered around a specific person. The person would be a man. He will enter the human race by being born of a woman. He will do battle with Satan. Satan will strike a blow against him but will not defeat him. And he will crush Satan and his power. All of this started with the first hint that God gave in early in Genesis saying, this is how I'm going to deal with this and bring hope back to you. So what we recognize very early on is that God was not going to send an angel to deal with our sin. God was not going to send some superhuman being to deal with our sin. He was going to send a man to come to deal with this. And it begins a long chain. Other hints that we are given is number one, or number two, he will come from the Semitic people. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, it said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now, we all know that after the flood, Noah had sons and daughters that had to begin to deal with narrowing down what line is God going to use to bring Jesus, the hope of Christmas, to us. And out of the three sons, Noah declared that the deliverer would come from the descendants of his son, Shem, who would be the father of the Semitic people of the world. And we begin to see the funnel beginning to narrow a little bit as it brings to us hope. Next, we begin to see how he spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. He says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And so we now know that it will be the son or a son of Abraham as the scope begins to narrow as to what God is doing. So many years later, as God spoke to Abraham, he called him to leave that city and to go into a place where God would lead him and to show him afterward. And Abraham obeyed and ended up in the promised land. And this represents the narrowing down of the promise from all humanity to one solitary man. The deliverer must come from among Abraham's descendants. Then you get to Genesis chapter 22, and he begins to speak that he will be coming through his son Isaac. Speaking to Isaac, he said, Through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, the reason that we know this narrows it down is because the promise came through Isaac and not Ishmael. 
Now, we are still dealing with that issue today in our world today, but the promise came through Isaac. And then it followed a little further that when Isaac had children, he said it will be through your son Jacob in Genesis 28, 14, when he said all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And so out of the two sons that were mentioned of Jacob and Esau, by custom it would have been Esau who had been the oldest that the blessing would have come. But in a weak moment, he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And God honored the poor decision and even the sneaky way that Jacob handled all of this and came through Jacob's line. And again, we see it narrowed. We see it further narrowed when the Bible tells us that that hope would come to us through the tribe of Judah. Jacob had 12 sons. And as we look at this, we would begin to recognize that, again, according to custom, the oldest would have been the one that come to the line. So by rights, it should have been Reuben because he was firstborn, but he was passed over because he sinned. The second, or the same was true of Simeon and Levi. And then Jacob came to his fourth son, who was Judah, and he utters a prophetic prophecy that literally reverberated through history. Because Jacob, when he was old and he was dying and his eyesight is getting bad, but through eyes of faith, he begins to see things and speak. And he he spoke in such a way that Judah would be a lion-like tribe in courage and would have full power and strength and that their tribe would lead the way and that the other 11 tribes would follow. In Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter, which is the sign of real authority, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, which we now know, looking back on it, was going to be Jesus Christ. And the obedience of the nations is his. Moving further along into the Old Testament, we get to the part where he begins to speak to David about it being one of his descendants in 1 Samuel chapter 16. After rejecting Saul as the king, God chooses the youngest son of Jesse, who we know from the story wasn't even in line with the brothers when when the prophet came to make the the anointing and, and to make the appointment. And he says, is this all of your sons? And he says, no, I've got one more who happened to be out in the field doing the work while everybody else is there on display. And he chose a shepherd. And I always love the fact that God chooses people who are shepherds at heart. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he begins the promise of, which is the most specific yet. He begins to talk about how from the line of David, this promised hope would come. And then he says that more than that, from David's house and kingdom, it says the throne will last forever. And suddenly we begin to recognize that we're not talking about just any kind of man because David had many sons, but all of them have died. We begin to recognize that his son Solomon and Asa and Hezekiah and Josiah named just a few. All those, these men were righteous before God. They were human and they could never reign on his throne forever. So mortal men could never exhaust this great promise. It demands a ruler who will live forever. But what person could fulfill that requirement? Not even David could have imagined the answer to that question. And so now the promise becomes very specific indeed. We've moved from a member of the human race to a descendant of Shem through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to Judah, to the tribe of Judah, to David, to the descendants of David, and ultimately to someone who can reign forever on David's throne. 
So who could this deliverer be? Where will he come from and how will he be recognized? And then we move farther into the Old Testament and we begin to see God narrowing the funnel a little bit more with his prophetic words. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when he said he will be born of a virgin, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. A virgin birth. I wonder what Ahaz thought when the Lord began to move upon him through the Holy Spirit to write this prophecy. I wonder what Isaiah thought of how God would convince them that this was exactly what he had planned because it made no human sense to them that this would possibly be the way that God could bring hope to the world. And yet, very specifically, God begins to narrow down the funnel of who could possibly be the hope of eternity. And then he narrows it down even further when he says in Micah 5, 2, that he will be born in Bethlehem. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And you take all of these prophecies together that started immediately after the sin in the Garden of Eden as God began to narrow down the funnel and you begin to see that he will be a Jew. He will come from the tribe of Judah. He will be a descendant of David. He will be born in Bethlehem and he will be born of a virgin. And you look at all of these qualifications and you recognize that many people could fit the first one. There's a few that could fit the second one and fewer still that would be a descendant of David. Fewer still out of that that would be born in Bethlehem, but only one who would be born of a virgin. And now we get to the, the pinhole at the bottom that there's only one person who can be the hope of Christmas. His name is Jesus. He fits the qualifications. Matthew has an amazing genealogy that begins to talk about the, the family nature that he came from. And how many of you know none of our families are perfect? And Jesus wasn't either, as you look at this, and the way that he came and how God continued to work with even imperfect people, which brings us to the place today where I am so glad that I deal with a God that does not demand my perfection in order to use me. He doesn't demand that I come from perfect circumstances in order to be used. He can take us just as we are, and he can do anything through us as long as we submit ourselves to him. We learn God keeps his promises no matter what. Some of you have had promises in your life that you know God has spoken to you. And because they have delayed, you have begun to wonder, is it ever going to happen? I want you to be reminded today that if God promises it, it will happen. Do not give up the faith on what God is going to be doing in your heart or your life. And secondly, we learn that God uses very flawed people to keep his promises. Imperfect and he can work with us. And that ought to give us hope. That ought to give us hope. What God has done for others, he will do for you. The second thing that brings us hope is that he says that he's a present help to us. We can find hope in the fact that God has told us that every day in our life, he will be with us. Psalm 46 1 said, God is our refuge and strength and an ever-present help in times of trouble. I find it very comforting that God comes 
in the time of trouble, but I have to admit to you that my morning prayers never ask for that. When I start my prayers in the morning, it's generally, Lord, if you would go before me, knock the hills down, take out all the obstacles, I will follow behind you, you clear the way, make my path straight and smooth, I'll give you all the glory for the easy life that you're going to make for me, and I'll tell everybody how great of a Savior you are. And there are some days like that. And then life hits. And you begin to recognize that it was really, really important for him to tell us that he is still hope when we're facing trouble. He is still hope when we are facing trouble. There's a book that was written by David Jeremiah called A Bend in the Road. The book he wrote tells about what it was like for him as his ministry is growing and his, his influence was growing and in the middle of all of that he was diagnosed with cancer. And he discovered that there were some things that he was learning in the middle of this and he felt that he needed to write a book because he came to discover that God sometimes shows up greatest when you're facing a bend in the road. And so he began to just outline the things that he was discovering about God in the middle of this difficult time of his life and and he began to outline for others who would read it as he spoke candidly about his battle with pain and the nausea and depression that came along with it. And, and in the middle of that, recognizing that there were no guarantees, even as he has gone into remission, that it would never come back. But the book's title comes from his observation that sooner or later, every one of us is going to face a bend in the road. Some of you are living in the middle of those right now. You had a plan, you knew what you were going to do, and you knew how you were going to get there, and in the middle of it, just when you thought things were moving along, boom, there's a bend in the road that you didn't see coming. And it's easy for people in those moments of time to push God off to the side and say, why did you allow this to happen, and why did you do this to me, rather than seeing God says, I am an ever-present help in the time of the bend in the road. At the end of his book, he wrote this. The only road that leads to the destination God desires for us will always have sharp bends, and any attempt that you make to shortcut it will lead you into the wilderness. See, life is a journey. It's got many twists and turns, and as I slowly, and I repeat, slowly creep toward being older, I've discovered that I believe more and more in the sovereignty of God. I have what I have because God has willed it. I live where I live because God has willed me to live here. I was born into a particular family because God willed it to be so. I was born in Louisiana, raised in Nebraska, met my wife in Missouri, and now live in Syracuse because God has willed it to be so. And even my problems, and I admit to you that there are not very many, are apportioned to me by the hand of a loving God. I am what I am and who I am and where I am by the sovereign grace of God. That means there's no such thing as luck or fate or chance, not when it comes to my very existence, who the Lord says, I am always with you, and I am a God that brings hope, and I know what's going on, and I will walk ahead of you in every bend in the road. It's very possible for some of you today that Christmas reminds you of the problems that you're having in life. In fact, they've 
Studies have shown that Christmas is a depressing time to so many people. And I want you to understand it doesn't have to be because hope has come into the world. And his name is Jesus Christ. We're reminded that we have two grounds for hope, even in our darkest moments. Number one, God is at work engineering your circumstances in ways that you cannot see, but he knows where he's going, he knows where he's going to lead, and he will ultimately get all of the victory in your life if you'll just simply obey. Secondly, he can forge good out of whatever seems hopeless and even evil within your life. There's great help and hope that God supplies in the midst of of all of the twists and turns of our life. And lastly, we have hope for future glory. I've had some conversations this week with couples that are preparing to get married, and I remember, I can't remember who it was I was talking to, but I just remember the night before I got married, I was begging God, God, please don't come tonight. (laughs) Please don't come tonight. And this thought kind of ran through my mind. Well, you love her more than me? Right now, yes. Just, you know. We have these things in our mind that we all want to accomplish and we all want to get to and and, and things that we want to reach out and, and accomplish in our life. But also, the older we get, the more grand glory looks. The more beautiful it becomes to us. There's great hope in the fact that we who have Jesus Christ as our hope have a fantastic future that is beyond this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but, when, but we shall see him face to face. Now I know in part, then shall I know fully, even as I am fully known. Won't it be nice to have all the answers? Oh, Hallelujah. We're going to see him and know everything that we wanted to know. 1 John 3, 2. Now we are children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a great future we have that know the hope of Christmas. Hope means better days are coming. If you're discouraged at this Christmas, let me build you up in hope. Better days are coming. It's going to get better. Jesus is in charge. He knows what's happening. He wants you to lift up your eyes. His help is right there for you. Better days are coming because future glory awaits us. A few days ago, someone very close to Cindy and me was saying, I am so glad that we have a Redeemer. Have any of you ever said that? in the middle of darkness when you don't know which way you turn and you just simply put everything in perspective and saying, I'm so glad I have a Redeemer. And she's right because today there's much suffering. There's so much pain. There's so much hatred and violence and lawlessness and such brokenness. This is God's world, but it's not the world he made God's world deeply marred by sin, but he says to those who have found the hope of Christmas through Jesus Christ, better days are ahead. That became real to me and reminded me of how great future glory will be when a few years ago we got a call that my grandparents who were in their mid-90s and still enjoyed their freedom of living on their own, that 
the police had called because my, my grandmother had called and said, there's a strange man that's walking outside of my house. I need somebody to come and arrest him right away. And as they got there, they discovered it was my grandfather who was outside, and, and she had lost the ability to recognize him. And so they called us and told us that it was going to be necessary as a family for us to make some decisions as to putting them in a place where they would be safe. A couple of years ago, as my grandfather got into his late 90s, he was 98, they told us that his time on earth was growing short, and so we began to make preparations, and we got the call that he had passed away, and Cindy and I flew to Texas, and we got there um, within a day of his passing and, and discovered that all of my family and all of the people that worked at the, the nursing home said, we've been waiting for you because nobody has told Grandma a thing because you're the pastor. Great. So... Cindy and I walked into the room and sat with Grandma, and we took her by the hands. And, and for those of you who have family members who are having dementia and Alzheimer's, then you understand this completely. And you're trying to bring the reality of a present situation to somebody whose comprehension kind of goes in and out. And there was this moment as we're holding her hands and telling her that Grandfather has gone to be with the Lord that it seems as if the, the clouds parted for a moment. And tears streamed down her face, and she said, well, he was a good man, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And we had a good life, didn't we? Yes, she did. And then the clouds came back. And it was as if there was that moment of clarity, and then rather than enduring the pain, the memory just disappears talked to our niece a couple of days ago who stops by regularly to see her said how's how's grandma doing she goes well she makes new friends every day he said the staff comes in and every day they all introduce themselves to her and when we get there she says i've made the nicest friends today and for them it's joyful but for for us who are family members and for those of you've gone through this there's this this empty hole that all of the life memories seem to have fallen into. And all I could say the other day is, aren't you glad that we have future glory where God will bring this all back? And everything that we think we have missed, God said, because I am with you, because I have sent the hope of Jesus, I will make everything new. 